Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. We are going to be talking today about the man of sorrows from Mark's 14th chapter. And I will confess up front that this is a heavy and difficult sermon that I um, have to preach three times today and have been waylaid all week in the study, and it was difficult to get through the first time, much less two more. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 32. They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here until I've prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and, and troubled. And he said to them, my soul, is, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. He was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not even keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, they came and found them. He came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. Came a third time, said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being delivered, being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. One of the church's favorite hymns is one of our favorite hymns here at Mission Road. It's Philip Bliss's hymn, Man of Sorrows. It's a haunting melody that we enjoy singing often. It arrests my attention and causes instant reflection each time I sing it. The opening lines are powerfully thoughtful. You know them well. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. The question we have to begin with is where, where does this come from? Where did the Son of God get the moniker or the name Man of Sorrows? I'm sure it surprises no one in this congregation that that comes from a direct quote in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3. It's the Holy Spirit himself through the inspired pen of Isaiah who calls Jesus the man of sorrows. We rightfully think of salvation from our perspective, what it grants us. It gives us mercy and forgiveness and eternity in heaven and redemption from hell 
what Jesus did for us on the cross, and that is a wonderful, wonderful meditation. But have you thought much about what salvation cost Jesus? What did salvation mean to him? What was salvation in the context of the perspective of himself? Listen to Isaiah 53, portions of it again, but with reference to him. He, he was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Like one from whom mid their, hid their faces, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was pierced through. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him. By his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before his shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for this generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul... He will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will deliver the booty with the strong because he poured himself out to death. He was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. As we come to Mark 14 and Jesus in Gethsemane, we are given a glimpse of what gaining our salvation meant to him, for him. The narrative of the Gospel of Gethsemane uniquely reveals Jesus' own personal understanding of the passion, the sufferings. And the source of these events, if you think about this, for the better part of this encounter, remember, we'll see in a minute, Jesus will leave the eight by the entrance to the, the grove of, of olive trees. He will take Peter, James, and John, the three, into the innermost part, and then he will separate himself a rock's throw from them so that he can pray by himself. He is by himself for the majority of this suffering, yet we know much about his suffering. How do we know that? At some point, between the resurrection and the ascension, 
Jesus must have described to them what it meant for him to bear the sins of those who believe deep in the garden. Jesus had to be the source of this data. This text, by the way, has been the object of derision in the minds of historical critics who suggest that the disciples could have not recorded what happened to Jesus when he was by himself. So this is obviously a made-up story that was perpetuated by tradition. No, this comes from the very lips of our Lord himself. Must have been many debriefs between the ascension, between the, the resurrection and the ascension. What did Jesus' sufferings mean to him it's a question that few people are asking in our day. Salvation seems to be so man-centered that we rightly appreciate the blessings of salvation, but inadequately stop to think about what, what salvation meant in the accomplishment of our redemption to him. It was going to mean for him enduring God's full, entire, furious, Righteous, deserved wrath for our sin. And he was going to experience that in the crucible of humanity, human weakness. In the incarnation, Jesus laid aside his glory, but he did not lay aside his deity. He added humanity. We say many times, the incarnation is not God minus anything. It's God plus human flesh. So in the garden, Jesus' humanity, we will see on full display. And we'll see him stagger. What we see here is foreign to any other experience that we've seen in the gospel record up to this point in Jesus' life. Here we meet a side of Jesus not known anywhere and never experienced by the disciples up to this point. However, Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane during the wee hours of Thursday night, early hours of Friday morning is where we can find the answers we're looking for to what the sufferings of Christ meant to Christ. In a sense, this is the holy of holies in the Lord's life. In the tabernacle, in the temple, the holy of holies was that place where it was most sacred and most holy. And you could not just venture in there without caution, without invitation. It was very limited. We know from Hebrews 10 that that division between the holy of holies and all of us was torn down. And just as Jesus' private, isolated sufferings were experienced only between him and the Father, by the pages of Scripture, that veil is torn and we are allowed to walk in and gaze. G. Campbell Morgan says, No man can rightly expound such a passage as this. It is a subject for prayerful, heartbroken meditation. John MacArthur says, As we look into our Lord's last night before death, we grasp what we can of the sacredness of this powerful moment in his life and ministry, but we realize that no amount of study or insight can ever give more than just a glimpse of the divine human agony he experienced there. As I told you before, I, this was hard enough to study all week, hard enough to preach 
this morning, and to have to do it two more times is almost overwhelming. This was a place that he brought the disciples. It was familiar. John 18, 2, as we'll see in our next study, says the garden was a place the disciples met often to meet with the Lord and to pray. Judas knew this place well, and Jesus knew Judas knew this place well and went anyway to the garden. He had told the disciples just two days earlier that after two days, the Passover is coming, the Son of Man will be delivered up for crucifixion. And a few moments earlier than this encounter in the garden, he told the disciples that this night they would all fall away. They had to understand they were at a crisis point in the life of their master. And when you come to the Garden of Gethsemane, two gardens come to a confluence. They, they meet, they coalesce. The Garden of Eden, in which in chapter 3, verse 15, we find out what we call the first gospel, the proto-evangelium, where we're instructed that one day the Savior would crush the head of the serpent, but his heel would be wounded. And that garden is fulfilled in this garden in Gethsemane. That prophecy begins to be fulfilled. The serpent would be crushed, but the Savior would indeed be wounded. So, I want to answer with us in this study, what did the sufferings of Christ mean to him? What did they mean to him? And to understand this, we're going to look at at his sufferings from three angles, if we can, three different perspectives, three views of the Savior's suffering. Three views of the Savior's suffering. It's like taking that diamond and looking at different facets. The first is to look at his sufferings internally, the, the turmoil and distress that came to his heart. Severe distress, internally, severe distress. Now, remember the context from last week in verses 30, excuse me, 27 to 31. The garden follows the Last Supper. They were not prepared for what he said at the end, which was, all of you will desert me. It will be a prophecy fulfilled. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. At the same time, he promised that there would be a resurrection after death. In verse 28, after I have been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Such promise there. He knew they were going to all fall away. He knew they were going to desert him, and yet he still invites them to meet him next week in Galilee. I'll meet you there. He's actually going to prepare a fish breakfast for them. They have no idea. Then comes Peter's Unbelievable announcements in verses 29 and 31. He protests. Peter was not intimidated by by the living word of God saying you're all going to fall away. That's Jesus. Or the written word of God, Zechariah saying, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will flee. The living word of God and the written word of God did not deter Peter's courage, his extreme arrogance. He believed he was going to be the exception to that prophecy. And Jesus predicted that he would not only defect, but do so three times in the next few hours. At that hour, he asks for the relational support of his human companions. His humanity desired not to do this all by himself. 
So verse 32, they came to a place called Gethsemane. That's the olive press, the olive groves, grove of olive trees. And he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. So his disciples, we've, we've talked about this many times. You're, as if you're looking at the, the schematic of the um, Jerusalem, you, you're, you're looking from the north. And you're looking from the north. You have the Temple Mount, and it falls off uh, into a valley into the Kidron Valley. There's a Kidron Brook that was full during the winter that they would have crossed. Then they go, you, you cross that and begin the slow ascent up the Mount of Olives. Right down at the bottom was the garden where... This happens, the garden of the wine of the olive press, Gethsemane. He instructs eight of the men to stay right here. We'll find out that for sure in a moment. Eight of them were to stay right there. He knows what is ahead and he wants to go pray. Wow, this is no small lesson. The most stressful moment in the Lord's life drives him to be alone with his father. Do your most stressful moments push you to be alone with God before they push you to be with your companions. There's nothing wrong with human companionship. We're to bear one another's burdens, Paul told the Galatians, but that's after bearing our heart to the Lord in prayer. Mark recorded Jesus praying alone only twice before this time, chapter 1, verse 35, chapter 6, verse 46, this were these were during times of crises, times of decision, picking the disciples, for example. This prayer time, though, is the most intense and traumatic that the disciples have ever seen, and I would venture that the Lord had ever encountered. Gethsemane was a quiet place where he had taught and prayed, where they had rested, perhaps slept under the stars. Eight of the disciples are left at or near the entrance of the grove. And then verse 33, he took with him three, Peter, James, and John, and began to be distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. These three men are Jesus' inner circle. We know that. We've seen that all through Mark's gospel. They're the same three he took up to see his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, as you remember. By the way, all three of these men had explicitly, Matthew 20, verse 22, Matthew 26, verse 35, explicitly shared their readiness to die with Jesus and share his fate. Yet here, they are called only to share in his preparation for death. Even though Jesus knew they would fail at that. William Hendrickson writes that Jesus would take some of his disciples into the grove is not strange. Being human himself, he stood in need of food and drink and clothing and shelter and sleep, but also of human fellowship. He needed these men. Even more, they needed him. He drops the three off, and now he goes to be alone. We, we just do not have the human ability to comprehend the depth of Jesus' agony here. As sinless, holy God in human flesh, he was able to perceive the horror of sin in ways that no human has ever experienced a look at sin. 
He also had the ability to feel the human side of anticipating what that suffering was going to be in a way that no human has ever felt before. He knew exactly what was coming. He knew how it was going to come. He knew who was going to do it. Mark tells us, he gives us two words. He was grieved and he was distressed. Two really, really rare and strong words in the Greek. Ademoneo, terribly distressed, crushed with anguish, incapacitated with grief. Anguish of wretchedness, that's what our dictionary tells us. Greek scholar C.E.B. Cranfield states that this word means, quote, an anxiety from which there was no escaping and in which he saw no help, no comfort, end quote. There's another word, distressed, ekthambesathai. Cranfield says of this, this denotes a being, being in the grip of a shuddering, trembling horror in the face of the dreadful, dreadful prospect before him. Have you ever been so so afraid that you were uncontrollably trembling. That's this. He was rocked. Then Jesus himself, as a third word, when he, when he speaks, he says, I am deeply grieved. Paralipos, overwhelmed with sorrow. He knows death is coming. He knows the gruesome method of his execution. But I don't think he's contemplating the fierceness of the physical sufferings. He's anticipating the abandonment of his father. William Lane says, Jesus came to be with his father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven opened up before him. And he staggered. Why all this sorrow? Why all this pain? Was it because he knew Judas was approaching? Was it because he was painfully aware that Peter was about to betray him? Was it because the Sanhedrin were about to condemn him? Was it because Pilate was about to sentence him? Was it because his enemies would ridicule him? His soldiers would mock him? Romans would scourge him? Disciples would forsake him? The people would turn on him? His mother would watch him die? Was it because he would be beaten with fists and rods and have the flesh ripped from his back by tipped whips? Have a crown of three-inch thorns pounded into his head? Was it because he would have his hands extended and his feet stretched out and be nailed to a cross, dying of a torturous death? I'm sure that factored in. But nothing could compare with the fact that he was facing the reality that God was forsaking him as if he were us to pay for our sin. Verse 34 says he was grieved to the point of death. He was so overwhelmed, he thought he was about to die. He literally thought, I, my heart is going to stop 
from this grief. I don't think this is any exaggeration. The grief he was experiencing almost killed him. But it wasn't the time. Just the beginning. The first view of the Savior's sufferings were internal, severe distress. The second, spiritually, it should read, spiritually, divine judgment. Divine judgment. This is the heart of the passage. Earlier we sang a song that's one of my favorites, has become my favorite in recent years, His Robes for Mine. The opening line of that chorus is this, I cling to Christ and I marvel at the cost. Jesus forsaken and then this phrase, God estranged from God. No religion can sing that line except Christianity. Verse 35 is the account of the beginning of this amazing theological reality where God becomes estranged from God. In just a few hours, Jesus will utter, nailed to the cross, the quote from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That forsaking begins here in the garden. We know that because for the first time, we'll see in a moment, in the history of God in eternity, the first time in Trinitarian relationship with himself, there's a breach. Jesus prays for the cup to be removed and there's no answer. He prays a second time and there's no answer. He prays a third time without answer. This would be the first time in the history of the Trinity in the experience of Christ at the incarnation that there was no answer from heaven. He was being forsaken. Verse 35, he went a little beyond them. The original means a rock's throw, just a few yards And he fell to the ground. He didn't trip. He didn't stumble. He was unable to stand because of the grief. He falls to the ground. His face is in the dirt and begins to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him. Remember at the end, and John records that when he... uh, uh, created wine at the feast. Um, His mother basically wanted to have a a big messianic coming out party. Here's my son, the the, the Savior. And, And he said, no, this is not the hour. The hour has not come. It became a refrain when people wanted to promote him before this moment. The hour is not here. He told the disciples that after healings, after miracles, after feeding the 5,000, the hour is not here. Now he says the hour has come. The hour has come. And he says, now he prays that the hour might pass him. The reason for his distress is that he is getting his first look into the goblet, into the cup. And he sees the boiling, poisonous, treacherous, 
fury of God's rightful wrath for sin, and he couldn't even remain standing. Verse 36 is almost beyond comment. And he was saying, Dad, Father, all things are possible for you. Please remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Abba, that term of endearment, what little children call their dad or their daddy. This is sure evidence that Jesus, being God's son, was addressing his father. What's happening here is the son of God is experiencing the father turning his face away from him. How often do we sing how deep the Father's love for us? How great the pain of searing loss, what? The Father turns his face away. That's happening here. The issue is not whether or not Jesus should accept the Father's purpose, but whether that purpose need include drinking the cup of his wrath, the cup of vicarious suffering, substitutionary atonement, were there not some other way? Is there not a lamb? Is there not a, is there not a perfect lamb who could, who could stand in my place? Is there an alternative way to pay for the sin without enduring your wrath, Father? That's what he's praying. Show me. Isaac said to his father on Mount Moriah, Father, where's the sacrifice? And there was a substitute in the bushes for him. Here, Jesus says, is there another sacrifice? There's no answer. Which is the answer? No. A quick survey of the Old Testament reveals that the cup that's mentioned here was a well-used metaphor for God's wrath. Now, I can give you a whole list. I'll put these on the website this week for you. Psalm 116, excuse me, Psalm 11, 6, Psalm 75, 8, Isaiah 51, 17, 51, 22, Jeremiah 25, 15 to 17, 49, 12. There's, I have a whole list of them. The wrath is God's, the cup is God's wrath as if a potion to be drunk and absorbed, which was lethal. John 18, 11, Jesus said to Peter, put the sword in the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? I think this cup is the cup of God's wrath, but it's also the cup of remembrance. He just told them in the previous paragraph that the cup of the new covenant was his blood that they should remember that his blood was the sacrifice. And he said that proleptically, that this was going to be himself as the sacrifice. Hendrickson again says, Jesus now prays that the cup now be spared him, that it is passed by him. The completely sinless, in fact, exemplary nature of the prayer appears from the fact that the main clause, if it is possible, which in turn is elucidated by the words, nevertheless, not as I will, but you will, Jesus is submitting himself entirely to the will of the Father. 
and we can say that at his own expense. This helps us to answer the question, who killed Jesus? Now, we complicated theological question. Did the Romans kill Jesus? Well, well sure, they, they nailed him to a tree. Did, did the Jewish leadership kill Jesus? Well, sure, they, they, they conspired. Did Judas kill Jesus? Well, he was complicit in that. Did the Jewish nation kill Jesus? Well, yes, they're, Acts chapter 2 and 4 tell us that they were explicitly responsible for not receiving him as Messiah. Did your sin kill Jesus? Absolutely. But all of those have no comparison to the fact that it was God's will to crush the Son for our benefit because we could not atone for ourselves. But notice, as much as his human nature shrank away from the cup, still he did not shrink away from the thought that he would comply with the Father's will. The most just person in the universe was about to be subjected to the most unjust event in the history of mankind. He would be vilified, defrauded in the petty courts of sinful, bitter, spiteful, jealous, lying men, all in the name of God. Hebrews 2.9 says, He came to taste death and rejection from God for everyone. At this point, by the way, Luke records that God sent an angel. Appeared to him to strengthen him, Luke twenty two forty three. 43. This may have been an answer to his prayer, for even though the cup was not taken away, he was given strength to take it and drink it. I just think of today, he, when you and I call out to the Lord, he doesn't send an angel. He comes. The writer to the Hebrews helps us interpret this moment. In Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh, he offered up, speaking of the garden, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. God the Father heard him, but he still paid that penalty. He had provided justice, but was given injustice. He had been ultimate kindness but was treated with unrelenting meanness he was so gentle but was now given torture he had demonstrated humility but was mocked with pride he had given healing but was now given pain he had offered heaven but now was experiencing the powers of hell and the author of life was now to suffer an undeserved ignoble death in the cup was a reality that he would be forsaken by God so that anyone who believed would not have to be. He was silent about all the sufferings until the full impact of God's wrath was experienced and then he cried out, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? G. Campbell Morgan says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is hell. No other human being has ever been God forsaken in this life. Man, by his own act, alienates himself from God, but God never left him. 
He brooded over him with infinite patience and pity and took man back to his heart at the moment of the fall in virtue that the mystery of Calvary, which lay within the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, long before its outworkings in the history of the human race. God has always made a way for us to come back to God. Jesus, I think Morgan is right, is the only person who's ever truly been God forsaken. Matthew tells us that at his disposal were tens of thousands of angels. We've talked about this. I've thought about this so many times. I just, he, 1 Peter 1 tells us the angels look at salvation and they don't understand because they were never given mercy and grace. In this moment, in my sanctified imagination, I can picture every angel of heaven with his toes curled over the portals, with his hand, their hands on the sword, ready to drop into Gethsemane and defend the Savior. And God the Father says, No, this is my will. The fact that the cup was not simply the anticipation of physical suffering is proven by the fact that Jesus had told the disciples over and over of his death and resurrection. He knew he was going to rise from the dead, so death would not have been a threat that it was for you and me or those who had had previous thoughts about this. He was driving to the finish line where he would say it is finished. Listen. This full and furious wrath of God contained in this cup was our cup that we deserve to drink. And he drank it for us and instead of us and as a substitute for us. You know, history is full of people who face death bravely. Socrates, the tale of, that Plato tells us, faced death without any intimidation and went bravely to his death. Is Jesus a wimp here? Is he a coward? He's not afraid of death. He is terrified of alienation from the Father. He marched straight to Jerusalem, straight to the garden. He knew Judas would find him there. He's inviting opposition. He's not afraid to die. He's traumatized by being forsaken by God. He's not afraid of the prospect of death. Mark 10, 45, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. So how do we account for the distress on the Lord as he faced what he'd already predicted. Well, like so many times before in our study of Mark, I found the words of our friend James Edwards so insightful. These are powerful. Listen to this, this section. Edwards writes, It's one thing, fearful as it will be, to answer for our own sins before a holy and almighty God. Who 
can imagine what it would be like to stand before God to answer for every sin and every crime and every act of malice and every act of injury and cowardice and evil in the world in acquiescing to the Father's will of bearing the sin of many, interceding for the transgressors, Isaiah 53, 12, Jesus necessarily experiences an abandonment and darkness of cosmic proportions. The worst prospect of becoming the sin bearer for humanity is that it spells complete alienation from God, an alienation that will shortly echo in the above Echo above the desolate landscape of Calvary with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not his own mortality, but the specter of identifying with sinners so fully as to become the object of God's wrath against sin. It is this that overwhelms Jesus' soul to the point of death. The sorrow in the heart of the Son of God was because he was bearing the death penalty before God for sins he didn't commit. Our sins. Your sins. The sins of those who believe the gospel. Isaiah 53.6 The Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. But verse 36 says, yet not what I will, but what you will. Even though in his human weakness, Jesus recoiled at the trauma of being forsaken by God, he still submitted to the will of his Father. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Our first view of the Savior's suffering internally, he experienced severe distress. Spiritually, he experienced divine judgment. And thirdly, brotherly, human abandonment. If it wasn't enough that his father is abandoning him, so are his friends. Verse 37, he goes in to pray and he comes back. Verse 37, he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, that's a pretty significant switch. He said to Peter, Simon. You see what the difference there? He didn't even call him the rock. He went back to his pre-courageous days. Simon, are you asleep? And then these words that tell us so much about prayer. Could you not even keep watch for one hour? Luke and Matthew tells tells us, could you not even pray for an hour? As if praying for an hour is no big deal. And you couldn't even pray that long? Keep watching and praying that you may not come to temptation. I know you want to. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is a spiritually fought battle. Again, he went away and prayed a second time, saying the same words. Came and found them, a third time rather, and he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were very heavy. And they didn't know what to say, how to answer him. Last words of the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13, 37. 
Be on the alert, lest I come and find you asleep. Mark records the disciples' failure, and if Peter is Mark's source as we believe him to be, we know this must have been a stinging memory. And before we get too hard on these men, on these disciples, remember they don't have the omniscient foreknowledge that Jesus has. They haven't been listening well. They have been through an exhausting day and week. It was after midnight. The fact that they would, would, would go to sleep is well within my understanding. Have you ever fallen asleep praying? Nevertheless, these men should have stood up and stayed awake. Jesus is obviously talking to all three, but identifies Simon, identifies Peter, probably because Peter had been so courageous and brave in his estimation of his abilities. After the second time that he comes back, Luke, the physician, records that at that moment, in the second of three prayers, Jesus comes out And his robe must have been stained with blood. As his body wreathed and writhed in torment, his sweat glands were insufficient in their attempts to relieve his suffering with perspiration, and his subcutaneous capillaries dilated and burst, and blood began to escape his pores through his sweat. I know you've been sorrowful. Have you ever been that sorrowful? The tension on his whole body, his frame, became so great that his whole life seemed to be oozing away through every pore of his body, so weak and faint. Through the terrible strain, he feared he might die and die before his time. Verse 41, and he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping? And they had been. And he says, it's enough. Done. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Stood in the Garden of Gethsemane, or what we believe to be the Garden of Gethsemane, was certainly within a hundred yards or so of where it would have been. You can very easily look right up the ridge at the Temple Mount, and it's, there's no doubt in my mind that Jesus would have looked up and saw the torches coming down, led by Judas. The posse was coming. The sinking pit in the stomach of our Lord when he saw those first glimmer of lights approaching. But he didn't get up to leave. He didn't run. He didn't hide. He didn't resist. He walked, John says, straight toward them and says, who are you looking for? The long-awaited cup is at his lips. And he begins to drink. He wasn't walking into the custody of men not just into the hands of sinners, an interesting description of these men. He was walking submissively into the custody of the will of God the Father. John 18, 
Verse 2, now Judas, who was betraying him, knew Gethsemane, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with the disciples. He used the Lord's own faithfulness against him. I usually offer a few takeaways from a sermon. There's only one here, only one. It's in the refrain of that hymn we began with. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, rude scoffing. In my place, he condemned, he stood condemned, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless, we spotless lamb of God was he. Full redemption, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die, it is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high, hallelujah, what a Savior. When he comes, our glorious king, to his kingdom us to bring. Then anew this song we'll sing and you can say it with me. Hallelujah, what a Savior. If you don't know Christ and you can hear his willing sacrifice for your sin and walk away from him, the only possible answer and response to that is an eternity in hell for rejecting this eternally gracious sacrifice. 